0: Hi, you're listening to Offsite, a series of interviews with theatre makers who work on unusual, site-specific, site-responsive and non-traditional spaces. This series was recorded over two weeks in December 2020 and is supported by the Arts Council. I'm Owen Winning and in this episode I'm talking to Owen Boss. So, I'm joined now by Owen Boss. Uh, Owen Boss is a designer and visual artist. He's co-artistic director of Anu Productions, a company that has since 2009 been building a reputation for creating transformative experiences in unusual locations and challenging theatrical conventions by blurring the lines between immersive and site-specific practice. He holds a Master's of Fine Art at the National College of Art and Design and has exhibited widely. In 2011, Anu's Laundry earned the Best Production Award at the Irish Times Theatre Awards for their production Laundry, and they continue to produce work regularly to critical and audience acclaim. Um, Thanks very much for joining me, on. No problem. Um, Can you remember the first play you saw, and where was it?
1: The first play I saw... uh, It was when I was really, really young. We went uh, uh, with the school. I can't even I was so young, I can't even remember. It. But it was called Spick and Span. I have no idea where it was. I have really foggy memories of uh, of what it was about. Or I can just see kind of colours and actions and a bit of a set. I think it was a car or something on set. Uh, I remember it being great fun. Uh, but other than that, I couldn't tell you really too right. much about it. That's the very first, and that's a really foggy memory.
0: And did you uh, continue uh, to attend theatre like as a kid
1: not really I had like I'd never uh, the next kind of big one was probably Doubt in the Abbey and that would like I would have been I don't know how old at that stage in the 30s maybe oh wow okay Uh, so yeah there was a big kind of gap theatre wasn't something I had uh, had went to I suppose I wouldn't have a a culture in I suppose I've come from a visual arts background so that was my training and Mm -hmm. that's what I was where i was coming from uh, so i started getting into it through collaboration with louise i suppose louise Lowe. and mm-hmm. uh um yeah i started going to the abbey then and some of the, the, the yeah. bigger houses i suppose
0: yeah. uh, were you like artistic from a young age or, or what drew you into the arts in the first place
1: uh my brother uh, my older brother is an art teacher and so he went to he's about 10 years older than me so I was seeing that kind of as a form of years and I was trying to copy everything he was drawing and making a hames of it <laughs> um so uh so I saw him progress through college uh, he did art education at NCAD and I was very fascinated by what, what he was doing he was a big influence on me I suppose I've probably never said that to him but uh, yeah he was what's his uh, name you can you can give me his a name his name is Ted Bots Uh, yeah yeah um he now designs the curriculum for the uh for the leaving cert and junior cycle uh, for the art uh the art side um and yeah so anybody has him to blame for for those things (laughs) Uh, so that was a big influence on me and then i think the household i was in i was always brought to art galleries Mm -hmm. and that was a huge influence on me so uh I suppose, going back to your previous question, those formative years uh, where other people might have had in theatre spaces, I had in art galleries. Mm -hmm. I have vivid memory of going into the National Gallery and uh, the spiral staircase there and just being amazed by it. And just being amazed by these houses that kind of were homes to amazing artworks that you can just stand in front of and myself and my mom and dad would go in and when I was really young and kind of just wander about. And I had a real love of it, I suppose. a fascination by it and like it's an amazing thing that you can walk into a building and they're filled with these just absolutely amazing things you know mm. uh, and then I think they also um I was never pushed into a career as such yeah, it was always up to me to just to, to kind of find my own way and I was supported in that so yeah there was no kind of there was kind of suggestions to go and join the civil service and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I resisted. And, um, but the support was there to do what I wanted to do. So. That's
0: fantastic. Um, so you co-founded Anu with uh, Louise Lowe in 2009. Um, had you been working together for long before that and what made you decide like now is a good time to start a company? This is the person I want to do it with. Um,
1: myself and louise met in 2004 uh, we were on a course in youth arts it was done through maynooth university it was a postgraduate certificate done through maynooth university in association with the national youth council of ireland and it was working with young people through art generally outside of mainstream education and um, to kind of on projects i suppose just working with young people to do art and that's Mm -hmm. where we met um and we had a huge falling out on our first day uh so much so we were shouting across at each other uh in the class we were all in a circle in the room (laughs) and it was a fundamental question what is art oh
2: god Uh, that was the first day
1: yeah yeah pretty much (laughs) we both fundamentally disagreed what it was and we had a shouting match across the circle, uh, giving out about to each other and kind of pointing our own points of view across. And um, so over the course of that year, like we both went off to our kind of respective best friends and kind of said, "Just this idiot in my class and it's going to be a very, very long year. Um, mm. And... Uh, over the course of that year we kind of came closer to each other's point of view. Um, and like, I was suggesting that art could be anything that art, um, didn't need to have boundaries or that it could be absolutely anything as long as it was mm-hmm. kind of uh, positioned in the right way or viewed in the right way. I and mean, Louise had a number of kind of, um, uh, a number of things that needed to be associated with like intention and, um, Context or something yeah and i was kind of well no it could be anything we both fundamentally disagreed and kind of argued our cases and um but over the years we've come closer to each other's kind of um opinions i suppose so Mm -hmm. like i would fundamentally believe that there, there needs to be intention behind what you're doing um and so that was kind of interesting start when we look back now mm. how we've worked together for so long so over the course of the year um, at the end of the year you had to do a, a, a project and uh, you were encouraged to work with somebody else in the class And yourself and Louise um, had become good friends I suppose and we kind of saw each other's practices as um, there were similarities in them and we were both and I think Louise would say that she would, uh, was looking for somebody to push her and um, and so we decided to work together on this project um for the end of year course um and Louise at that time was the Artistic Director of Roundabout Youth Theatre in uh, in Ballymun and I was um I was just doing that course I'd come recently come back from traveling around uh, backpacking and that kind of stuff and um I landed in that course and was kind of uh looking to do be an artist i suppose with some sort of educational um kind of uh, practice as well i suppose um and yeah we just kind of fell in together and then um we started to make this this project uh, decided to work together um and i think we both well i certainly did admire kind of uh her practice and how she talked in that class, I think, and how she mm-hmm. was in that class so much. I think we saw really similarities around quality and looking at the young people as their own autonomous artists and their voice being really, really important within um, a collaborative practice where you're working with young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, we decided to work together. So uh, we produced a piece of work called Tumble Downtown in 2005. Okay. Um, and that was a, uh, we got some funding from Breaking Ground. Um, Breaking Ground was um, a public art commissioning body in Ballymun. So, under uh, percent for art schemes. Um, there's a capital project. A fraction of a percent goes towards the art. So, that's why you see yeah. kind of um, all the stuff on the motorways. Sculptures on the motorways and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. So, uh, uh, Ballymun Regeneration Limited. Uh, which was the company overseeing the the, the regeneration. Mm. They had decided to pull together all the kind of funding aspects of that and put it into one pot, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, Breaking Ground was the, the arts um, organisation that would uh, manage that and was curated by Ashley Pryor and um, Sheena Barrett. And it was amazing, um, amazing kind of. Uh, program of work that they had commissioned and we were lucky enough to get funding on that to do Tumble Downtown which we worked with uh, 26 young people over the course of a summer um, to look at their lives so at that stage they would have been around 50 they ranged from about 14 to kind of 19 maybe 20 at the most um, and Ballymun had been uh, basically a building site for about 10 years. So most of their formative years, they've been living on building sites mm. uh, as, the, as the regeneration was happening. So we were curious to find out from them uh, their attitudes to their area. So uh, to look at the past, present and future of Ballymun, what their hopes were, what the past was for them and how they were feeling about it in the present. Uh, and to look at that in a multidisciplinary way. So looking at it through uh, theatre, visual arts and sound art. Mm-hmm. and then to get a site uh, in Ballymun. So we took over an abandoned flat in uh, Tower Block and oh. to invite audience in to, to see that work. And that's when we started to work. We, uh, we, put, uh, we put in an application to uh, be in the Young Fringe that year. The Young Fringe was running at that stage and um, uh, we got accepted, which was absolutely fantastic. So put it on to the public within that festival. Mm-hmm and we sold out and so the, the concept was people would come in audience would come in i can't remember how many it was like maybe 10 to 20 maybe like yeah. 15 it's quite a small flat like and they would be brought from room to room where they are would encounter uh the young people mm. uh, as they delivered uh their kind of theatrical work i suppose um that we would have worked on over the summer um and they were brought from room to room and kind of the audience would be kind of changed rooms as they were in other rooms. So they they never knew, never really knew where they were and how big the place was and that kind of thing. And they encountered these performances that were dealing with these young people's lives that we would have walked up over the summer. And then at the end of the uh, performance, we turned the uh, the flat into a, an installation space where the young people's um. Their installations were were there to be seen by uh, the audience, and the audience could be kind of could wander around and kind yeah. of almost decompress, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah. This is how it had become where they could have conversations about actually what they had just seen and over the artwork and, and, and that. And um, so that was the first thing we did uh, together. Mm-hmm. It was a huge project, um, and we won the Spirit of Fringe that year. And right. uh, off off the back of that, um winning the Spirit of Fringe, you were, uh, you won a commission to put on another piece of work the following year. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah, it was brilliant. And myself and Louise say, we don't know if we actually would have worked together again. Other than
0: other than yeah, it was a commission. huge success, but, and you'd, you'd yeah, germinated yeah. all the seeds of your uh, your future working well, relationship well. in the first show. we may
1: have gone our separate ways, like you really, I uh, don't know. But we were we were commissioned to do a new piece of work the following year, so we were kind of locked in to working together mm. um, in some way. Uh, that so, we may may have anyway.
0: So your short but, answer is that we had to
1: yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> oh. but we continue to work together like i i, like I love working with louise and mm-hmm. like i think she's she's a genius and she's really inspiring and i think she's absolutely fantastic and amazing to work with and um so we decided we just kept working together and i was uh, we did a number of projects with the youth theater i think we were out there for about three years and we did in different locations but i think the the kind of seeds for what I knew would become are laid out there so that idea of when we went, when we started working with the young people we didn't know what we were going to do like all we knew was as, as I've said to you is the past present future Ballymun their position within it and working with the different art forms to see what would happen if we uh, engaged in a creative process that looked at these things through these different art forms and then mm-hmm. we put them all together and see what happens and that's all we knew and that's we started very often we would have like we're a process-based company, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So we enjoy and think that um, the process of making it is is the thing, I suppose. And that's the joy of it. So we don't put too many restrictions on um, on what we're doing. I mean, we, we allow it to grow uh, as we proceed with the work, I suppose, as we, mm-hmm. Make it if that makes sense, yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, and how long do you usually develop a show before you know inviting an audience in, either you know staging it or or having it
1: as an installation? It depend, but it years it's like mm-hmm. two, three years actually, mm-hmm. two years probably short, I'd say three years plus right. out that we would start kind of. So, would you have multiple digital. projects then in the pipeline? Yeah, so we'll be doing a few this year, and but we'll also be doing developments for the following year, and then there's also a kind of an ideas phase or something that's kind of uh, for even further than that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so it's almost like three years in advance or something that we're mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah so we're thinking of stuff now that might be relevant in 3 years time, 4 years time, you know. So. Which,
0: which I presume is is difficult to, you know, I mean is there an element of trying to predict the future in in some of this or do you just sort of rely on actually these are stories that you know haven't been told before or or something that we're interested in and actually it doesn't matter when we put it on if it puts if, if it's 3 years or 6 years it'll still be relevant.
1: It can depend. Like, uh, I think it's all of those things. Um, so um, I think the centenary decade of commemoration uh, has been really helpful in okay. kind of um, plotting a way through that, especially in the early days, like, like 2013, looking at the lockout and then going, actually, we see that in relation to what's going to happen in 2016 mm-hmm. and then more of independence and civil war, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but then there's other stuff that we do that wouldn't be um, within the commemorative bracket or, but uh, could form an interest in what we're looking at. So, um, yeah. so there's, yeah, there's multiple ways into it, I suppose. Um,
0: and yeah. un- unless I'm mistaken, like Anu only works in unusual spaces. Is that is that right? Or have you staged anything in the traditional venues?
1: Did something really early on in project called Corners. That was like one of the first things we did, um, mm-hmm. and that, that was actually not in one of the theatrical spaces. It was out in the the foyer. Area, so, <laughs> okay. yeah, of course. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, but other than that, now it's been pretty kind of. Or if we do engage with a site or a theatrical space, it's 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 a very particular engagement. Mm. So we would have done the Lost of Casey um, <clears throat> part one, uh, which was in the Peacock Theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reasoning for it being there is that uh, originally uh, Nanny's Night Out, written by Sean O'Casey, uh, was performed there. So mm-hmm. there's a very particular reason for putting it there. Yeah. Um, but we've still, also... Still specific. Yeah. So, um, what we, like, we've we did an exhibition last year in the lab gallery
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we did a piece called Scrapefoot in, mm-hmm. um, uh, the arc in the gallery space in the arc. So mm-hmm. there are, like, we do engage with, um, those ty- uh, spaces, mm-hmm. um, but um, there are you... specific reasons for that.
0: Sorry. What, what usually comes first, like the subject matter or the site?
1: Um, subject matter i'd say yeah uh, yeah uh, and then we see if we can find or sometimes it can happen in tandem mm. um so if i go back to um say so tumble downtown and Balymon, that's kind of looking at the past present future Balymon we're in Balymon at the time it's been redeveloped there's lots of um there's lots of flats there are um, being abandoned, so it's an easy kind of well, not an easy ask, but it's an easier ask to go to the uh the housing manager of the city council, yeah, uh, for that area and, and kind of talk to him about that, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, and that kind of happens almost simultaneously, so sure. Um, but then there's others like, I don't know, um. Or there's commissions, like PALS was a commission from right. uh, the National Museum of Ireland um, yeah. to look at the PALS. So there was Battalion. never any
0: question it was going to be in the National Theatre?
1: Uh, well, PALS was in the National Museum. Oh, sorry, so the National
0: Museum, excuse me. Yeah, Yeah.
1: yeah. so no, there wasn't. Uh, so it was, it was um, Curator of Military History, Large Joy had come to us with this idea of looking at the PALS Battalion. Uh, and they had been billeted in uh, the National Museum uh, and so it made absolute sense to engage with the subject matter there. So those two, two things were already locked in. Sure. Um, then maybe fault line. Um, that was uh, the idea first. And then we looked for a space uh, for that because those spaces didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, we were looking at um, the Phoenix Club on around Parnell Square. So it was important to try and get somewhere close to there. Or uh, these rooms was um, uh, North King Street Massacre. And we needed a site that was obviously, uh, it was a kind of a, a, an urban park on the site of the massacre. Mm-hmm. So uh, we managed to get a building um, that was going to become the Free Legal Aid Centre, which is what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, Louise had been doing, um, she was doing a fundraiser with them. She was directing the Sean O'Casey shows because Sean O'Casey had been born there. Mm-hmm. and uh, of course Louise is, is doing these, uh, directing these pieces for a fundraiser for Fleck but also has one eye on the building kind of going oh this is kind of interesting we have this project coming up and this thing you know this could could work and um, started to talk to me about it and it's like two minutes maybe five minute walk from where the massacre happened so mm-hmm. um, it kind of has a resonance there and there's a kind of by proximity yeah. So it can happen a number of different ways, and it's yeah. not always kind of. There's no formula for it, I don't think. Mm. Um, I mean, we did say. Um, it's easier during. To get buildings during a recession, I suppose. Um, and we would have noticed with kind of the upturn, that it was harder to kind of try and find buildings. and uh, mm. They were getting more more difficult, and yeah, uh, it was harder to try and secure them. I suppose.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean I like I have a habit of, you know, in in public spaces like looking around at the height of the ceilings and the amount of windows and exits and where power outlets are and kind of sizing up places all the time. Is it the same for you when you're developing work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If we go into a space like I'll be I try and look where I think people won't be looking just to see what that space is or that space that may not be noticed. So, whether that's a ceiling or it's an amazing floor mosaic or um in behind Fire place the fireplace or something, or... yeah, in behind a cubby hole or something, mm. what is that? Like, I look at the normal places and stuff, and actually, last would be power sources where I go, Oh god, we have to plug stuff in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what plugs have we got? at the drill, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would. Uh, I like to sit in the spaces as well, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of be there and be present. Uh, I like to, I like to do that bit on my own as well, um, mm-hmm. and just stick around on my own for a while and just kind of, uh, just imagine what it could be. I suppose. Yeah. Just sit there, be with the space for a while, um, and to see how the, an audience would engage with it or see see what they see when they walk in immediately and i often like i don't know if i've ever told anybody this but i often tend to be an audience walking into a space it's uh and what's that first impression when you Mm -hmm. walk in the door and i do that with my own work as well when i'm trying to kind of figure out where to put things or what will work or um how is it physically in the space Mm-hmm. So I'll walk out of the room and then I'll walk back in. It's yeah, simple but maybe stupid. But I I do the same thing. That, but, yeah. What's that first impression? What is? Yeah, yeah. When the eyes just hit a new space, what is it that they're drawn to? Where does the eye draw? Where is what stands out? What doesn't? What do I want them to look at? What don't I want them to look at?
2: Mm.
0: Brilliant. Um, so working in like specific sites, you can often have strange uh, <coughs> working hours. Um, you know, artists sometimes only have access during limited hours. Uh, how do you balance your work life and your home life?
1: Great difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not too bad. I have... Um, it, you just It's the job, it's the gig, it's what you mm-hmm. do. It's kind of, you, you manage it, um, so... Um, I have two kids. I have an eight-year-old and thirteen-year-old. Um, it's really important for me to make time for them. Um, but also in the new, like, uh, Louise and the rest of the company are really kind of open to me bringing the kids in if I need to. Um, mm. and we would say that across the board with um, other people. And um, yeah, we kind of. Uh, so it's very open in that way I suppose and um my daughter just came in the door there I heard her or she wasn't meant to come in <laughs> I'm a bit distracted uh, so and it was it, it's actually really quite difficult in the early days because I would have been working part-time as well so working part-time have a new going as well and have the family and, and, and just trying to make everything work and it's just It's just about time management, I suppose. Yeah. So when I was in work, I would be doing a lot of thinking. It was the type of job I could do that. I could, uh, when I wasn't busy, I could sit down and just, I have, um, I used to work in Dublin on the gates and in the shop and I would take moments where I would, so in the winter it's really kind of, nobody's coming in. So I have these receipts. Uh, from the till where i would mm-hmm. be writing down ideas and thoughts and all those things so i have loads of those and uh to to think. so it's kind of bringing my work to there and then um and then also balancing all that kind of stuff out so i think it's about time management really
2: mm. um,
1: and uh, yeah yeah having a very understanding wife
0: yeah always always helpful um who are you, who would you say are your main influences visually visually um, in terms of artists or or in terms of any you know any sort of images or
1: yeah um i love um the work of jared Byrne. Yeah, he's an irish artist um i think he makes amazing uh video work uh, i love his work um I love film. I love cinema and film. I love film with really amazing design. Mm. Um, so I was watching The Shining over Halloween. So just absolutely amazing sound design, amazing kind of uh, set design. Uh, I love geometric, geometric patterns and anybody mm. who's worked with me knows mm. of my love of wallpaper. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, um, who else? so many I love. Um, there's an artist called Kevin Atherton. He has a piece called In Two Minds, which is an amazing piece of work. Um, paintings of Colin Martin are amazing. There's um, lots and lots of different kind of influences. And um, I came across an artist a couple of weeks ago uh, called Theaster Gates, who's a Chicago-based artist. He makes kind of socially engaged uh, work. Um, and he um, he engages within, his, he's a black artist from Chicago and he engages with his community. Um, he mm-hmm. has a background in town planning and um, he also did religious studies and he's a potter and he makes contemporary art um, and socially engaged contemporary art and he's mm-hmm. interested in kind of um, yeah, black culture and black um, the black space within America and, mm. and I just came across a couple of weeks ago and he's just kind of really chiming with me and how he does, he, he takes um, he takes collections as well so he, he has Jesse Owens uh, the athlete Jesse Owens uh, record collection which he would display yeah. and um, yeah he does lots and lots of different things that I'm really kind of interested in mm. so he's uh, at the moment he's kind of what I'm kind of really interested in.
0: Right. Um, how's your relationship with technology? Do you still mainly sketch ideas with pen and paper? Or do you use software?
1: A bit of both. Um, I am uh, a notebook kind of guy and a uh, sketchbook. And uh, I bought an iPad a couple of years back um, and an, uh, an Apple pen. And mm. I have a number of kind of apps that I use and, um, so i take photograph of spaces and then I would draw onto those photographs um, and uh, just try and figure out what I want that space to look like, how I want it to look. Um, but it's fairly rudimentary, to be honest, uh, my engagement with that. Um, and over kind of lockdown, I've started to engage more with um, uh, drawing and kind of my love of drawing and I love sketching and ideas so Mm. I've kind of gone a bit back to that Um, but I have no kind of formal design training so I have no kind of I I don't know CAD or anything like that Mm. Uh, which is a bit like so when I would kind of work with some bigger institutions is a bit kind of you feel it almost a little bit inadequate because you don't have that kind of knowledge on how to to pull a you know CAD drawn together and send mm-hmm. it over to now there's ways around it but um but i've never had that kind of formal training and in, in, in those um in that aspect but yeah, I,
0: do, uh, I presume as well though that that with your work being mostly in in a certain style and you know in a certain process that you know you don't necessarily want to interrupt your workflow by kind of going off down another path and kind of trying to learn a new a new way of of drawing you know or
1: I think so well
0: or would it just be adding to what you already do I think
1: it'd be adding to it I think it's yeah. how the industry works and I think um like I had one production manager tell me he would love if I <laughs> <learned> that. <laughs> Uh, because of what I was doing. Um, and I was, as the years have gone on and the, uh, the design and the installation kind of development and installation design has, um, has gotten bigger and we're doing bigger rooms and stuff like that. And mm. I'm uh, trying to figure out ways of doing kind of things that aren't normally done. And um, mm. uh, and you're working with bigger institutions or, uh, or institutions bigger teams have, yeah they have a particular way of working and i expect a 3d plan mm-hmm. and you're going it's just drawing i did here <laughs> uh, okay well maybe so, we can
0: sign you up for a bursary or a, a travel and training scheme or something
1: oh, well i've put in for an application for okay. the, um, the professional yeah. development so i think Best it's about yeah thank you <laughs> well, I think it's important and I think it's important to, to be able to engage that way and then that breeds confidence and it's about kind of uh, combining um so the idea is the important thing but then the the giving of that information over or the kind of translation of that
0: mm.
1: is really important oh
0: absolutely yeah
1: like yeah. I would have had a drawing of um I would have had drawings of kind of walls that were at angles and stuff. Production manager going, if it's at those angles, like it works in your drawing there, but if you actually did that, that wall wouldn't stand up. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: You know, so mm. so there's pros and cons to both. Like I don't think it's it, it it's almost interpreting what is in the sketchbook or the notebook or whatever you know.
0: Um. A common impression of your work is that it's uh, meticulously detailed um especially if set in a particular time and, and place um how much time do you dedicate towards like research um when you're developing a show
1: the research like it's it, it, it's about developing the idea as well and as I said earlier like it's it's three years down the line Nick, you know mm. so um <clears throat> so that's when Uh, The research starts really, and it's about compiling information. Uh, So whether that was in the Lost casey, looking at everything from nineteen twenty, like what does set in a nineteen twenty shop in Dublin, like what does that look like? What is it? Mm. What are the things that uh, Casey could put down in uh, stage directions in the Lost or in um, Nanny's Night Out uh, that I don't have any frame of reference for anymore? What are those things? What do they look like? What does a nineteen twenties door look like? Um, uh, and that start That's miles down and that's just for the look of it. And that's like it's. It's also about researching to get to the core of what the idea is about, and the core. Of it. It's not just about. Um, well, for me anyway, it's not just about. Um, Accuracy. A backdrop for. Oh, yeah. uh, for performers to perform in it. it it has to speak to the work and of the work as well. Like it has to, like very often, it has to, for me, it has to be able to exist as a piece of work if nobody's performing on
0: it. Which which is often the case. Like, I mean, you could be, one performer has just left the room, you could be waiting for another performer to come in and you might be sitting on your own as an audience member and you're just in this room, so. Obviously, if there's something that looks like it doesn't
1: belong there, it would be jarring. Yeah, absolutely. So everything has to to ring true because, um, because of the immersiveness of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're kind of stung out of that immersiveness, in a way, say something doesn't look right for the period, mm-hmm. uh, that can be jarring and just take the audience member straight out of that, you know? So yeah. it's really important that it... it you know, sits together and um, speaks to each other and kind of nothing kind of, I suppose, shocks you out of that, yeah. whether that be a wrong prop or a wrong time frame of that stuff. Hmm.
0: Um, several uh, new shows have been presented in a prominent style um, with sections taking place in different areas around the city. Um, does that introduce an element of unpredictability, you know, where you might be going from one site to another but you're going in between just people going about their business who are not part of the show um do you welcome that or do
1: you try and control it um we control it to a degree but you can't control everything so Mm -hmm. but we make it as safe as we possibly can for everybody Um, Mm -hmm. and that's in performers performers and audience Mm -hmm. um and it's like a lot of people might think that our work is at some stage is improvised. It isn't. It's kind of, there's a really strict, rigid uh, framework in which the the, the actors work in um, that is essential for the work. So we'd yeah. often do kind of fault outcomes around kind of if a question is asked, what is a decision that an audience member might make, and what are those, and how will that drive the story or the narrative, and what will that ha- what will happen to the audience, or what will happen to the actor? Then. Um, but outdoor work, we would also have security, and a lot of people may not be aware of that, but they're always being watched, and just we always have security on, and we've worked with the same security team for. Uh, almost 10 years now I think um, oh. and they're really really good like uh, first time I think they were on um, Boys of Foley Street might have been the first one because we were yeah. so much out on the street but it may have even been earlier Brad. that hasn't yeah. been
0: 10 years has it yeah nearly yeah yeah
1: yeah oh my god yeah 2012, boys of Foley wow. Street yeah, so far off you know yeah. so uh, yeah we've worked with uh, Jonah's team for for that long and um, it's a very particular Ask that we have mm. that security, and um, uh, and that it's it's a non-interfering one, and it's a kind of sitting back, and it'd be rare that any audience member would know that they're being uh, being watched. Um, but there's also like we embrace the unpredictability of the city mm. as a as a kind of on saying, I suppose that yeah. as a as it's that when I think the street work that we do is 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 almost it's what brings the work alive uh, when it's out in the street. Sometimes, you know, that there's stuff going on that like people think it's part of the show, but it's not part of the show, mm. but it it, it it starts to uh, color how you're viewing the city. Yeah. So it's almost, you it, you see the city in a very particular way and it's a hyper kind of, a hyper scene and, um, that alters how you view or see the city. So that stays with you after the show. So as you Mm. travel home, you're still in that hyper viewing uh, mode of seeing that everything, as you go home on the bus or whatever, uh, on the dart, everything you encounter is to be viewed and questioned as you had done in the show. Yeah. I I
0: certainly felt that after laundry, like it took me, probably days afterwards before i stopped here or before that lessened you know um, yeah
1: when when like when we get it right that's for me anyway that's that's what happens and i remember when we did um world's end lane first and like i'd helped make it and i went through the work as a, a kind of test audience and i mm-hmm. came out the other side and i just kind of went oh my god like i'm seeing the city in a different way. And it happened to my head. It was, I'd, I'd only ever felt that when I'd watched the film Memento,
2: mm.
1: where uh, it's a film that's shot backwards, I think, and yep. it kind of alters how you then view a kind of 2D-based work. So if you mm. watch TV after watching Memento, your brain has trained itself to watch Memento, and it's a really odd kind of... <laughs> yeah. I think I'd watch Coronation Street straight after something. <laughs> it's really weird. So it's a similar kind of training of the brain that then the residue of that kind of sticks with you on your way home
0: Mm. um as a collaborative artist how do you balance your own artistic needs with those of your collaborators
1: um that's what collaborating is about like it's about Mm -mm. and that's what it should be for all the collaborators coming in there it's about kind of mining the 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 way people see the work or the world or how they engage with it, and it's their point of view. And it, I think, it's something that and Louise kind of chimed on in that course is looking at the young people as autonomous artists, and that their view of the world uh, is as valid. anybody else's so anybody who comes in to collaborate with us is is viewed in the the same way that it's a kind of conversation that happens over around a a group table that then develops into a piece of work but it's Mm. like if we're all looking at the same thing and we all bring our own kind of context to it Mm. so we're all looking at say it's a can of coke Uh, it's uh, we're all looking at it in in a different way. like So it might be an historian's looking at it, I'm looking at it from a visual arts design point of view, Louise looking at it from a uh, director's point of view, performers mm-hmm. are looking at it uh, from, and so it's everybody bringing their own uh, context to it and, uh, and sharing that. And then we kind of move forward with that. Um, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite color?
1: It's my favorite question. <laughs> <Is that? laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. <coughs> Uh, My favorite color is orange. Nice. Um, that's a
0: a good one. Yeah. I was gonna say, and why? But like,
2: what? Oh yeah. I um, when
1: I was painting, I used to, I worked working complementary colors, so I loved orange and blue together. So Mm. uh, I would do when I used to paint, a long, long time ago. Yeah, I would do an orange ground. So the um, the first layer you'd put on a canvas uh, is a wash layer. So I've put down an orange and then everything I work would work off in color mm. would be uh, the ground for that, the, the, the basis or the foundation for that is from orange. So everything responds to that. And I just look for how orange and blue work together and how in paintings, you can kind of, the transparency of it can affect it and stuff. So there you go. That's why. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, <laughs> it is very pleasing. Um, just look at every, every uh, blockbuster poster ever, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, What was the most challenging show you've worked on and what was it that made it so challenging?
1: Uh, The most challenging show uh, was a show called Angel Meadow, which we made in 2014 in Manchester. Uh, It was for an organisation called Home. Um, And it was looking at um, the history of an area called Ancoats and the Irish immigrants who'd gone over to Manchester and uh, the kind of scuttler gangs that had kind of come up in uh, during the industrial revolution. And so we're looking at Irish immigrants and that kind of stuff. Um, But what made it really difficult was my wife was really sick at the time. Mm. Uh, She had uh, a brain tumor Uh, in 2014. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor and had to have emergency surgery to have it removed. Um, I think Manchester was, I think it was a summer show. I think it was maybe June. Um, We were developing it in... I think we started developing probably earlier than April. I think we did kind of earlier developments, but the big one was April. It's all a bit hazy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife, she went into hospital in February or March. And uh, well, so she came through the surgery fine, but whilst in there, she contracted uh, swine flu and had to be mm-hmm. induced into a coma. And uh, um, she was in a coma for about 11 days uh, and then spent I think it was two months in, in hospital. Um, so the next show was Angel Meadow coming up like and Louise had said to me look you don't have to do the, the <clears throat> you don't have to do the show it's fine like you don't be worried about it unless you want to Like, but I kind of needed to do it I think mm-hmm. um, and I needed to make that work um, at that time obviously in a kind of uh, a time management capacity i suppose is what mm-hmm. you'd say so um so that yeah that was the hardest and uh, it was really good show though and was really kind of well designed i had a lot of kind of assistance on it. i had a lot of um uh, a lot of assistance from louise and a lot of assistance from within the company itself and the company of uh, performers and that so it was very um it's a difficult one, but it was really good. It's kind of hazy in my head now. I remember
2: right.
1: uh, it's hazy, kind of the making of it and stuff, and I can't really. I remember what it looks like. But, mm. uh, the actual process of it is a bit kind of. Yeah, it's kind of. It mystic, sounds shall we say sounds
0: stressful. <laughs> is she okay now?
1: Um, she still has um, uh, she's to a degree, but she has um, uh, so she came through that surgery fine, uh, she had kind of. Uh, lost some capacity in her lungs uh, and due to surgery she suffers with epilepsy now she's on kind of she's on heavy medication and stuff and she does get seizures from time to time um, which come out in um it's called aphasia where you can't uh, understand what people are saying and she can't actually so where the, the tumor was was over her um was over her language center of her brain Mm. Uh, so it's all to do with communication and language. So she can't understand people. And when she speaks, it comes out in gobbledygook. Um, so, but I am making a piece of work about it. So there is a uh, silver lining. So. <laughs> well, I
0: hope she'll be okay. A a sizable proportion of time in um, site-specific performance seems to be spent negotiating with owners of the site. Um, out of all your co-producers and patrons, who was like the best
1: organization to work with? The best is probably um, it's probably the museum, mm. National Museum of Ireland. Um, absolutely fantastic organization to work with. And so that would have been Curator of Military History, our Joy, who invited us in there. Uh, we were in residence there for a number of years. Um, <clears throat> and They gave us kind of unprecedented access to... Um, to the collection so um anything that was going into the 1916 exhibition we got to they brought us into the conservation room to actually look at the objects and hold the objects obviously with gloves and kind of in the proper situations Mm -hmm. um or the proper conditions and that really helped to kind of stimulate the work we were making um and um and a number of kind of projects came off the back of being in the museum and and uh, there's also brenda Uh, Brendan Malone there in in the National Museum was fantastic to work with as well Um, Mm. and um, we still have a relationship with them and still kind of um, so that was absolutely yeah that was pretty amazing Um, that must be incredibly
0: useful for if you're trying to research um, you know Irish history
1: absolutely like I can drop an email to to, to one of them and just say uh, I'm kind of thinking of this or Mm. Um, do you have any information on this, or where would I look for this? And they very often come back and just say, oh, "Well, it's this or that," or you know. So, so it's having their expertise um, so readily available is uh, absolutely fantastic, and uh, I think that's been one of the best uh, collaborations or institutions to work with hmm. from our point of view. Um, yeah, there's others, but I think that's like um like going in to see like uh just I did a piece of work last year called Intersection in the lab gallery mm-hmm. and part of that was looking at the curation of kind of memorabilia or kind of objects of people that had died. Um and so Brenda Malone brought me in to see the collections and she took out a number of collections that would speak to the, the themes that we were looking at for intersection and yeah it was just to have that kind of access and that expertise and that time and to be able to have conversations with Brenda about kind of how things are curated and how museums uh, try to create pieces of work and yeah it's just they're great. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, I sometimes think of producing a show as a series of decisions to be made, experiments to conduct and problems to solve. Um, How much of a designer's job is creating solutions and adapting
1: to limitations? it's a pretty big one, a big part of it. But I think, <clears throat> well, how I tackle it anyway, is that I dream big and kind of kind of reach for the stars. You might get the mm-hmm. stuck guy kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So it's almost like, well, what is it if budget is not an option? Sure. Or is, there's, there's no kind of barrier, I suppose, or there's no kind of top to budget? Um, mm-hmm. What is it if the space is whatever we need it to be? What is it like? And then from that it's like, well, it can't be that because X, Y, and Z, so it needs Mm. to change to to function in a real world, you know? So yeah. There's a kind of a bit of bit of that. Fair
0: enough. Um when the COVID 19 pandemic came to Ireland, a lot of theatre makers had to stop working as venues were closed and audiences were restricted. Um, Anu changed their plans for the 2020 Dublin Theatre Festival and started working on a new project, the Party to End All Parties, which premiered in late December. Um, how was that experience?
1: Yeah, it was really good. It was a Dublin Theatre Festival came to us and asked us if we would want to um uh, a new piece into the festival, um, and gave us the provocation of it to, that uh, maybe it should kind of be a hopeful piece. So uh, we kind of went off and had to think, and we had this um, uh, this photograph of Ireland becoming a republic in nineteen forty nine, um, where masses of thousands of people were gathered on a um, were gathered on O'Connell Bridge. And that was kind of the catalyst for it. Um, it'd been sitting on our <coughs> our workspaces for quite a, a number of years, and we were it was something Louise had been really interested in and exploring in another project, but it had it, it never really got traction, I suppose. Um but for this we kind of went, oh maybe it's that, and so uh, the idea of because at that stage um it was to start the lockdown, so nobody's going into town, so everywhere was deserted. Mm. So um so we started to work off the basis of, of, of using that as a launchpad into a new piece of work. And it had to be we made it really, really quickly. Um and um and of course we went into I think it was uh, level five. We went into what was it level five or level three? Level anyway, three, whichever level, level three, were, I was, think. Yeah. Yeah, it was level three. So we had intended to bring uh, Audiences in to see the work. We were usually open on a Tuesday uh, and on Friday we went into level three and so we couldn't bring audiences into it, but we had mm. planned to stream it uh, anyway. Like so it was um it was just it was a real letdown, not to be able to bring a live audience in. Mm. But we did have the stream we had intended to do, so we just turned our attention to that and like I had um all my design attention had gone into the The room that is at the start of the, um, at the start, and so I was ashamed that nobody, well, you got to see it on the stream, but shame you didn't get to experience it live in that room, um, around that table because it was kind of, it was a special kind of moment, especially at that stage when nothing has, there's been relatively few kind of, um, access to live works. Yeah, and live immersive works too, Um, so yeah, it was was a great thing to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Like I was going to ask you about the streaming element of it, Uh, obviously that was, it ended up being the only way that you you could present the work uh, due to the restrictions, but um, like are you in favor of streaming streaming live performance in general, or do you think there's a place for it uh, going forward?
1: Yeah, I think so. But there's a
2: <clears throat>
1: there's a language to kind of lens-based media. There's a language to to uh, to work to be viewed on the screen. So mm. not all theatrical works or live works transfer well across to a live stream or a stream or to be viewed mm. on your laptop. Um, sure. So I think. Uh, those things are to be taken into consideration and to start a lockdown uh, we made a decision not to push anything out um, because we really wanted to really think about the engagement with what people were looking at on their screens um, mm-hmm. and how they engaged with that um, and we resisted the urge to, to, to push stuff out mm-hmm. um, and for us that was the way to go uh, Louise um, started directing for um film and that kind of stuff she's been um, really investing in that in the last couple of years and kind of so it was a chance for her to to really push that out and really look at that and um, how to direct for screen and and I think she did an amazing job and it was good for her to um, to have that opportunity I think Um, but Uh, Regards, streaming theatrical work. Yeah, like I mean, I think the um, the language of screen work or work that can be viewed on screen is different to the language of a live work. Uh, Yeah, nothing,
0: especially immersive work. You
1: know. Yeah, but nothing kind of beats, especially with immersive work, beats being in it. Like it's very, um, it's very rare to be able to translate that across. So it's about how you how you try to achieve that, or how you kind of like what's the essence of the piece? What is the mm. essence of the live work? And how do you get that into a screen? How do you kind of try and transfer that to a screen? Mm. I was watching um, uh, Steve McQueen's uh, Lovers Rock, which was on a couple of weeks ago on BBC, and that's about a a house party, a sound system house party in the nineteen eighties in London, celebrating black culture, um, and that's just filmed phenomenally, uh, and just that's really immersive. Like I just kind of fell in love with the work, um, and so I think if it's done right, yeah, it's 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 great. But I think there's a tendency for for live work that's filmed to look flat. Because we're so used to seeing really good cinematic work, really good kind of um, TV series that are f- filmed really well, so we mm. we understand how to watch those things. So I think uh, a live work is at risk of kind of coming across as flat. Mm. Oh there's opportunity there for it not to, to do that.
0: Definitely. I think, I mean, I feel like there's definitely been so much investment by some companies into it now that they're not just going to put it down. They're still going to start keep exploring the possibilities of what, what it could
1: do for them, you know? Um, Yeah. And I think that to push that, that like, it needs to be pushed. It needs to, it needs to excite me. Like for me personally, like I need to, it, it needs to, to be visually kind of arresting and exciting and because that's what it has to be like because you're competing yeah <laughs> you know? yeah absolutely um as
0: a professional artist do you believe that art is essential work
1: um that is a really interesting question i don't know if it's if we were doing this a year ago, I don't think you would have asked that question. Of course not. No. I, think, uh, I think it's uh, asked in the context of a global pandemic. So essential, that word essential is linked to a global pandemic. And it's a very, it makes me think about what that word is. So what is essential? Well, like obviously kind of hospitals are essential and nurses and doctors are essential the jobs they do are essential Uh, also the guys who work in the petrol stations the guys who work in the shops Tesco's supermarkets they're all essential Um, so it's but are we saying that um, they're essential and other things aren't but I do think that there's more of a holistic approach, there's a more holistic kind of way of viewing it, there's a more holistic way of um, thinking about it, that it's not at the expense of one to the other. So, yeah, I do think art is an essential component of a culture, of a life, of a society. I'm drawn to uh, what Grayson Perry said recently and on, on the art galleries now extend that to theatres are kind of food for the soul um, and essential. like like. Um, so yeah, yeah, I do think that, that they're essential. Um, but I wouldn't want to enter that debate in a kind of binary f- fashion of it's one or the other because I think they all need to kind of coexist and work together. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I'll put my hands up and say as a question, it's a bit of a trap because yeah. it's such a simple question and without the context that we have now you know as you said a year ago it would have been a much you probably would have given a different answer you know Yeah, um, absolutely. So, but yeah, I'm th- i yeah, think, think about the,
1: the work with the Esther Gates the, the guy I was talking about earlier the guy mm-hmm. uh, the from Chicago and like his um He starts to invest in his community, Dorchester Avenue in Chicago, which is um, a particular community that uh, would be deemed socially deprived, I suppose. Um, And he started to invest in that, where he would seek funding to um, build social housing for local people. Um, But within that, it's to introduce culture and art to that community so that they can exist um, with art, with culture within their community for the betterment of that community. So mm. looking at it through that lens and I like looking at his work, like I can see, absolutely, yeah, essential. Um, so yeah, I think art is essential, absolutely.
0: Mm. Um, yourself and Louise started anew during the last recession and uh, you managed to build up a body of work Um, contacts, uh, funding uh, to a place now where you have a lot of experience, uh, awards, continued funding and a reputation um, for excellent work. So if there was another recession, would you be in a better or a worse place? Would you need to start again from the scratch? Or do you think actually there could be benefits there for a
1: company like Anu? Um that's a very good question <laughs> um, yeah. I think we were very naive when we set up anew yeah, like to set it up in the middle of a recession yeah. was yeah but we, we did it and um, it shows a resilience as well and I suppose yeah there probably is a recession coming down the hill I don't know like um but yeah, I think we would continue to work on and um, it wouldn't stop me making work. It wouldn't stop me thinking the way I think. It wouldn't mm-hmm. limit who I am or how I engage with the world, how I choose to work, how I kind of make work, how I make art. It wouldn't, um, it would add a context to it. It might make buildings easier to get uh, again. again. Um, but yeah, I don't think it would add to the context of how I make work and that to my practice, but I mean, my practice is a practice for life, I suppose.
0: Uh, great, oh, and Thanks for meeting. Like, like, I could, I could probably chat to you for another hour, but uh, I suppose we. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 have, I have to, to um, finish making the dinner, so I'll, uh, I'll leave it there okay. and Cool. Mm, uh, have to so have to add the cream now. It's getting very exciting. Cream to bolognese. To bolognese, yeah. After cream. three and a half hours, you add cream for the last half hour. Just what? like a drop, man. I mean, you want it to be a bit of a treat, like you know. Cream and bolognese. That's my I'll send you. I'll send you the recipe.
1: Please do. <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, thank you
1: very much. No problem.
0: So thanks very much to Owen for uh, that chat. Uh, Thanks as well to the Arts Council for supporting this project and to astronaut Mike Dexter for composing the music. In the next episode I'll be speaking to Sarah Jane Shields. I'll see you then.